adolescents. Also with um, nicotine replacement therapies, um, especially like the patches and the gums, that if they've had a cardiovascular event within the previous two weeks, um, there's some caution in, in using that or unstable angina or, or undermined um, serious uh, arrhythmias. However, with starting patches and even people who are on patches or other short-acting agents that continue to smoke, there's been no association with causing acute cardiovascular event. Okay, I'm gonna quickly go through all of the seven FDA-approved agents and then some nuances of dosing and then we'll progress into um, prescribing them so bupropion is our first agent we'll talk about. It's chemically different from any of the other antidepressants. Um, it helps enhance the levels of dopamine, which is associated with um, playing a strong role in nicotine addiction and, re and reward, feelings of reward. Um, the sustained release formulation is what we typically use for uh, smoking cessation. Um, you want to start slow because it is one of the main side effects is it's activating and uh, can cause a little bit of GI upset. So starting at once a day, sustained release 150 milligrams for the first three days and then progressing to twice daily dosing is, is the appropriate dose for smoking cessation. Um, it can blunt, blunt post-smoking weight gains a little bit. Um, also, uh, because it is activating, one of the side effects is insomnia. Dosing that second dose around seven, six, seven, eight p.m., <coughs> usually no later. That way it will help relieve that um, side effect of causing insomnia or um, inability to fall asleep. Um, just like when we prescribe it for depression, we want to be cautious of um, contraindications of people with underlying seizure disorders, um, anorexia, bulimia, heavy alcohol, alcohol consumption, anything that can um, lower the seizure threshold. All right, the next agent we're going to talk about is Varenicline, Chantix. Um, this works both by as an agonist and antagonist effect. It's antagonist, uh, so it binds, binds to the nicotinic receptor um, and causes positive reinforcement effects of smoking nicotine. It blocks that, while it's an agonist and it helps release, slowly release dopamine to alleviate with the withdrawal symptoms. So in essence, it relieves withdrawal while blocking rewards for smoking. So you can. Um, <coughs> can initiate this medication while you're still smoking. In fact, it will like, kind of reduce the desire or like, the, the taste or the rewards of smoking. Um, ideally, we want to start this one week prior to our quick date. With this, there also is a slow titration um, because of some significant GI side effects. We can start a half milligram <coughs> excuse me, daily for three days, then increase it to half milligram twice a day for four days, and then up to the full dose of one milligram twice a day. And they do make starter packs, so you can prescribe the starter pack and then the maintenance pack of one milligram twice a day. Um, there are some unique dosing strategies, so you can kind of like preload them four weeks prior to their quick date. Like I said, that'll help them like reduce the amount of cigarettes they're smoking because they are not, one, it's not, they're not getting the same rewarding effects. Um, also, for patients that have a high dependence, um, that have failed treatment, you can put them on as a maintenance. So they were still smoking, but they're smoking a lot less. So it's more like a harm reduction um, sort of evidence that looking at that up to one year. Now whether or not the insurance will pay for one year, typically they only pay for six months, um, but you could always go through that prior authorization. Um, one of the main things 
might see is your patients who are on Chantix and they say, oh, I'm having like these really uh, weird or vivid dreams, problems, sleeping, GI side effects. So those are very common. Okay. Um, you'll notice like, well, can we give it for patients with psychiatric uh, comorbidities? There was a black box warning and then the FDA retracted it. There's been some studies that have come out since 2015, since systematic reviews and meta-analysis that indicated the safety and efficacy of morenithine in smokers. <clears throat> Thought process is a lot of the patients who have co comorbid psychiatric conditions are already smoking to help cope with their behavioral health disorders. Um, there really was no association looking at uh, psychiatric suicide, suicidality, suicide attempts in comparison to placebo. Also, um, looking at cardiovascular risk, there's been a randomized controlled trial called the EGLES trial that was in 2018 that showed no significant difference uh, looking at major cardiac, cardiac adverse event, events. And then also in 2016 was a systematic review um, looking at cardiovascular serious adverse events and their, and their association contributed to varenicine. Um, some interesting things, and I don't know, have, have any of you prescribed varenicine and
um, the nicotine lozenges versus the nicotine gum. The nicotine lozenges is absorbed 25% more than the gum in the nasal bu buccal area. Um, and then for increased success rate, you can start your patches prior to the quit date, and then on the quit date, they throw out all of their cigarettes. They then can use the short acting to help supplement any of the withdrawals. Is there any limit to the amount of short acting you can use? And, and, and what, how, I, since I just had this through a um, e message form of one of my patients who's tried patches several times, okay. pretty motivated. She wanted to know if she could use a lot, and I said, yes, she could. So then she wanted to know how often or sort of went based on cravings and side effects. Um, there so is a max to it, and um, well, I'll get there in just a second. Okay. But yes, great question. The question was, um, what, what would be the, the max milligram for lozenges or gums?
every four to eight hours with remaining um, three weeks of treatment. Uh, for the lozenge, they recommend not to use more than 20 a day. Um, same with the dom, avoid eating and drinking 15 minutes uh, before and after use. Mouth irritation seems to be the main side effect of this. Okay. Have any of you prescribed the nasal spray? Um, it's prescription only. Um, it gives the highest level of, of nicotine uh, by all compared to all the routes. So back is fastest acting, so acts between five, five to ten minutes of the onset. Um, however, since it's so fast acting, it's a short half life that you can actually get withdrawal symptoms from the nicotine spray. So using it um, routinely, um, a minimum of eight doses per day that they look at. Maximum of 40, 40 doses per day, or five doses per hour. So, you, um, as you can imagine, spraying it can cause nasal irritation. It can alter your taste, um, your smell. Um, in fact, for the first, uh, when they uh, patients are started on this, 94% of the patients experience the side effect and end up not being able to tolerate it and go off of it. And at three weeks, about 80% are still experiencing nasal irritation. Um, for that reason, it should not be used longer than three months, and obviously would be avoided if anyone had reactive disease. Has anyone ever used a nicotine inhaler? This is also prescription only. This is actually one of my, I think my favorite ones of all, for a couple of reasons. One, like you're holding it, and it kind of helps with that habit of the oral sensation of holding a cigarette. Um, that's the device looks like a cigarette. Um, it's, it's provided uh, a cartridge that you put into this little plastic device and you, um, you need to puff it at least 80 puffs to get the full 4 milligram dose. And when you're puffing it, you have to puff it like a pipe, which kind of looks funny. You're like, but <laughs> don't inhale it because it's being absorbed in, in your mouth. Um, but what's nice about it is that you can kind of control how much you need. So you can puff, 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 and put it down, and you can come back to it. So if you don't need the four full milligrams, you can set it aside. Whereas unlike the, the gum or the lozenge, you kind of like, I guess you can spit the gum out, but you're kind of stuck with your dose. The nasal spray, you're stuck with your dose. This one, you can kind of titrate to, to what you need. Um, you need to do 20 minutes of active puffing, you, and then you can't eat or drink for 15 so it's the same kind of thing. Like, what do you eat or drink if you're like using these every hour? Um, you can use up to 16 cartridges per day, uh, and then for the first six months, and then you should taper it down as long as the last three months is tapering the dose. If you keep the product in um, less than 40 degrees, it alters, it decreases the efficacy. So you tell patients not to leave it in a cold car or don't store it in a refrigerator. Okay, and same similar side effects as the.
smoking e-cigarettes, you're still using e-cigarettes. So whether or not that's good or bad, we don't really know, but with the FDA, every Thursday, and I failed to look at it this morning, sorry, but I did look at it last week. Every Thursday, the FDA is updating the number of incidents of this, the lung issues that are being reported, lung injury cases and deaths. Um, as of last, of October 1st, there were 18 deaths reported in 15 states. I think there has been some in, in Pennsylvania. Um, since last, since reported last week, and over a thousand injury cases. So, new best system. I'm not sure if that's. I mean, if your patients are using it, um, it's not really been linked to a specific product, but just to have them be aware. All right, insurance coverages. So, the Affordable Care Act in 2014 said that um, the ACA mandates that tobacco cessation treatments be offered. It doesn't say which ones. It doesn't say any. It says up to one to three can be covered. So depending on which insurance you have, Medicaid, Medicare, or private insurance, government, state employees, um, it can vary. Um, Pennsylvania does not have a private insurance mandate, so a lot of the private insurances consider ACA replacement non-formulary. Um, know that we have um, available through the, the tobacco funding, the Big Tobacco, Big Pharma um, supplies money in the settlement decades ago that has to offer um, states money for tobacco cessation education. And in Pennsylvania, you can get free patches, lozenges, or gum. Have your patients call 1-800-100, but now they also get telephonic counseling. Um, I did a quick cursory look at some typical insurance we come across in clinics. Um, knowing you, the Medicare, all tier one, gum lozenge attached. If you have gateway, um, you could prescribe the inhaler or nasal, but not for UPMC for life or for you. It's not formulary. And then um, bupropion is tier one for all of them. We also have bupropion on our St. Margaret's pre-med formulary offer. However, we only have the SR100s, and I'm looking at uh, working with Bobby and Fault Pharmacy to getting that switched to the 150s so we can have like the true smoking cessation dose available for our patients. And then um, I just wanted to show you an example of a prior op because if you try and order Chantix, you're pretty much gonna be like, ah, it's not covered. Um, just know that they have to have tried and failed at least um, two nicotine replacements or some form of contraindication documented and uh, tried or failed or intolerance to be program. Great formulary app, if any of you ever use coverage search, it does the same thing, it'll tell you what's here. Okay, and in summary, the monotherapy versus combination. Combination seems to be a little bit more efficacious. You can combine long-acting, short-acting NRT. You can do bupropion with, with NRT, and you can do patch and inhalers. Um, you can do varenicline and bupropion together. And you can do varenicline definitely for patients that have um, are unwilling to quit that will help reduce their consumption. Well, they had to quit now. CDC has lots of resources. People will fail. So we encourage them to try again. Um, weight gain is typically less than 10 pounds. Um, and a big shout out to Kevin and his project for the Health Behavioral Change Program. So if you have someone that wants to quit, needs additional help, you know, send a, a message to your pharmacy team at all three family health centers. And Kevin will appreciate that, you know, helps his data collection with his DUI project. Um, and that's all I have. And before you leave, but I know we're getting ready to over a few minutes. Who wants to talk about genital ulcers? <laughs> Does that sound fun?
Excellent. Right on. All right, so you know, I'm told this is intended to be just like short and brief for like 20 minutes. Um, so clearly, we're not going to try and go through everything. Uh, we're not doing all of STDs. Um, I just want to focus. You think a lot about chlamydia and gonorrhea. You guys are pretty familiar with screening and treatment for that. So I thought we'd just kind of focus on, on uh, ulcerative lesions for those part. Uh, and just think through that. So really specific, OK? Um, I was just given this article uh, by my nursing staff uh, at Duquesne um, last, this is just from US News from last weekend. And it's about the young are having less sex and more STDs. I'm not sure about the first part, but the second part is definitely right. Um, so they're just saying, in all age groups, chlamydia grew to more than 1.7 million cases in 2018. That's a 3% increase over the previous year. Uh, gonorrhea, 580,000 cases. That's a 5% increase in syphilis. Uh, climbed to more than 115,000 cases. That's a 13.3% surge in one year. Um, so that's exactly what we're seeing. So chlamydia keeps uh, the fellows and I busy at Duquesne all week long. Uh, so we treat chlamydia just about every day. Um, and, and it keeps us pretty busy. Uh, we're seeing syphilis as well. Um, and so that's why I wanted to kind of talk about the non-chlamydia gonorrhea things today. Uh, but chlamydia gonorrhea is really, really common. Um, and, uh, and, and it's certainly uh, busy for us. Um, so um, again, we're not gonna focus on everything, we're just gonna focus uh, not, not the vaginitis side of things, but more the, uh, the lesion side, um, and think about the treatments for that. So it's a major public health problem as we we're talking about, um, and, uh, and we'll go through the particular presentations um, uh, of each one. So uh, kind of the key take home concepts from today are really just the treatment sexual partners. Single dose therapy, you're pretty familiar with, especially the gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, syphilis is convenient that way as well. Um, and so the single dose therapies uh, definitely improve compliance, and we, we try and stick to that. Screening guidelines, again, you're, you're pretty familiar with that, gonorrhea and chlamydia screening uh, up to 24, um, but uh, above 24 for those who, who are high risk. And that's kind of a lot of people, just about everyone that I feel like I see. Um, and so uh, it's pretty common that we would, would screen uh, certainly annually uh, after 24 um, in the graduate students and, and perhaps in the FHCs as well. So there's a lot of older folks that we would be screening as well. Uh, again, a relatively universal screening for HIV uh, and certainly for pregnancy, uh, a wide panel of HIV, hepatitis, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. Uh, for those things, you're, you're quite familiar. And uh, prevention as well, condom use, HPV, we'll talk about a little bit, and the AB vaccines. So those things are not necessarily easy to do. Um, so the, the first case, um, what we, you know, ideally what we do is, is kind of break up and have you walk through the case yourselves in little groups um, and think through the answers. So we, we won't do that because we don't really have the time to do that. Um, but let's take time to kind of talk through it together, okay? So um, this first case, um, a 25-year-old male uh, presents with a painless ulcer on his penis uh, for a week. He reports a new sexual partner and uses the condoms inconsistently. He denies fever, dysuria, or penile discharge. And he reports three total lifetime female partners, no chronic history of STDs, and denies illicit drug use. Uh, blood pressure and pulse and respiratory rate and saturation vital signs are all okay. Uh, no acute distress. Uh, genitalia shows you a one centimeter size, painless, round, firm penile ulcer with a raised edge. Uh, there's no penile discharge. Uh, exuded on exam, and then the testicular exam is normal as well. There's no pain or masses. Um, his abdominal exam is unremarkable. There's no lymphadenopathy in the inguinal area, which is particularly relevant, um, and, uh, and the skin itself uh, otherwise, uh, besides the genitalia, doesn't have any particular rashes or lesions on it as well. Uh, neuro is 
So um, here's a, a picture of the ulcer. So when you're thinking through what that could be, um, what, what comes to mind when you see a, an ulcer like that? I don't know how many of you have seen general ulcers like that, but what, what are some of the possibilities that come up? Okay, so what would we call that if it was a, if it, if it was a syphilitic ulcer? All right, good. So besides syphilis, which we'll go into a bit more detail, um, what else you know, comes to mind? What else could you just think of? What, what causes ulcerations? Not necessarily what looks, sorry, it's a little bit hard for you. Perhaps the color is not right for you. Um, maybe that one's a little bit better. Um, so don't think too strictly about this lesion, but what causes ulcerative lesions? Okay, herpes, great. Others? Cancer? Homophilus ducre, yes. Otherwise known as, we'll come back to it. Um, and um, what else? Lymphogranuloma. LGB, yeah, lymphogranuloma venerium. And uh, yes, um, and then the other one that we'll just kind of lump in here is the warts. So clearly that's not ulcerative, uh, but something just to kind of recognize there's also not kind of a vaginitis side of things. Um, so yeah, so, so that's very good. Um, the du Ducrae is the chancroid, right? Um, so again, not that common in the United States, but out, outside it's actually relatively common. Um, and so, um, that will often, chancroid, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but it often will, will be characterized by papules initially. Um, and then, are these ulcers in chancroid painful or painless? Painful. Painful, yeah. So that actually turns out to be a relatively helpful discriminatory thing with regards to genital ulcers. Is it painful or painless? Um, and so, yeah, each one we'll, we'll go through. So, um, what, what in, um, in, in this particular case, is most suggestive of syphilis. You kind of you jumped out with that right away. So, uh, what kind of stood out to you that that helped you point in that direction? Painless. Okay, painless. Okay, yeah, absolutely. The lack of like significant lymphatic atrophy. Okay. Yeah. And LGB, LGB will certainly have that. <coughs> Go ahead. The hard red color. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, that's right. So that, that painless aspect is particularly helpful with regard to differentiating kind of ulcerative, non-ulcerative lesions. Um, and, um, and as you've said, the syphilitic chancre is, is painless. Treponema kind of enters through mucous membranes in the skin through very minute little uh, abrasions. Um, and that lesion will, how long does it take to develop the chancre after inoculation? What was the guess? Three weeks? Yeah, okay. So all, up to three weeks or so. So it can be a little delayed. Okay. So up to about three weeks. Um, and right, so in that particular case, um, because, well, we'll get to laboratory testing, but the, the, the appearance of it, that painless ulcer with raised, firm border, um, is, is exactly what we've seen. And, um, and so it's a clinical diagnosis and recognition, and just raising it on your list in the differential uh, is an important aspect. Um, so, um, thinking um, uh, with regard to a little bit more about the exam itself, um, syphilis is painless, chancroid is painful, herpes is painless. 
in full. Um, uh, and, but in herpes, in, in that case, it doesn't really start with the ulceration, right? What does it usually start with before, you, before it ulcerates? Vesicles, so two of you are saying that, right. So uh, vesicles, absolutely. Um, and then LGV in its primary stage, painful or painless? It's actually painless as well. So uh, general herpes, how, uh, when you're thinking that these ulcers are in the vesicles, now they're ulcers, uh, and you're wondering if this is herpes, how would you go about doing a diagnostic test for that? What, what are the options for that? Besides your clinical exam and suspicion, if you wanted to confirm your clinical suspicion, what kind of testing would you send? You can swab it. So that's kind of PCR of our culture. And, this, and the serology. So uh, it, that, that, that's right. Um, serology kind of is plus minus, right? So sometimes it can be, be particularly helpful in an acute stage. Sometimes there's a little bit of a delay. Um, in in shank Freud that's presenting with painful ulcer, um, again, that's primarily clinical exam and culture. Um, and, and LGV as well, it will present in multiple different stages, and that's going to be by culture. Um, Perhaps by immunofluorescence as well. Um, and then general moisture diagnosing um, uh, clinically, really. So um, those are kind of the, the, the examining findings that help you think through the differences uh, between the, uh, the, the causes. Um, what, in this particular case, what diagnostic or laboratory tests would you order, given that you were primarily suspicious of syphilis at the beginning? What would be the test that you would order then? What do you normally say? RPR. RPR, yeah. Uh, so that, that's one of the non-trepanemal-specific tests, right? So Or VDRL, depending on what's available where you're working. Uh, in our context, it's mostly RPR. Um, and then if that comes back positive, what do you order? Or actually, a DPMC, they actually do an automatic reflex. Um, but so the lab will do the reflex, even if you didn't order it. Um, but Yeah, the TPA, the, the treponemal-specific antigen, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, the FTA, ABS, uh, so basically a, a, a treponemal-specific test. And a UPMC, it's going to be the, RD, uh, the RPR with a reflex FTA. Um, so, early on, there's some difficulties with the test. Early on in primary syphilis, that serology can be negative. So you can get a false negative if you're just relying on the serology to help you confirm your clinical suspicion at the beginning. Um, and so it can take a couple of weeks for that initial, um, to be, the initial lab test to become positive. So uh, be careful if we're just relying heavily on and serology. Um, and then what's the other difficulty that you might have come up with with regard to RPR besides false negative? The false positive. So how, how many of you guys have Kind of had to deal with that. Yes, it's relatively common, right? So sometimes it comes back positive. And there are a number of reasons that that could occur. So it could be a cross-reaction with someone with lupus. Um, it can occur in pregnancy, TB, HIV, um, rickettsial diseases, chronic liver disease, drug use. Most of the time, I don't find out what causes the, 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 the positive RPR. It causes a little bit of you know, um, fluttering in the office when you get a positive uh, result. Um, and then the, the reflex comes back, and it's just kind of reassuring uh, the patient if they've been told that they were positive. Sometimes that happens. 
Um, so they'll be told it's positive before you get the reflex. Um, so that's happened, and we've had to kind of smooth that over. Um, and, and then sometimes just kind of reassuring the staff that that's, that's not the case. Um, so, um, and then of course, if you actually express material from the chancre um, and did dark field microscopy, you could look at the spirals, but that's not usually what we're doing. Um, so that's right. So let's kind of have a look. These are the lab tests here. RPR reactive, coming up 1 to 16. His treponema specific response was positive. Um, and then the additional tests, which kind of you always kind of want to remember. So if you're, if you're testing positive for one STD, you should be testing for all of them, okay? Um, and so if there's a, there's a really good reason, you know, that we'll send off a GC familiar screen and HIV and RPR um, and then uh, and hepatitis as well. Um, so those all came back negative, thankfully. So those are our lab results. So uh, co laboratory confirmation of a clinical suspicion of syphilis. So what would you uh, consider treating um, this individual with? Penicillin, I'm hearing. And so what would be your dose? How much? Sometimes I'll uh, send the patient down to the county health department to get the shot, send the kids down the same day. Uh, sometimes that's a little faster than ordering it to the pharmacy, having it delivered to the pharmacy and then administering it. Um, so, because we're not holding the penicillin in the cupboard um, in the office. Um, but, uh, so, um, so penicillin certainly, if, if they're allergic to penicillin and, and not pregnant, you could use uh, tetracycline. So tetracycline, doxy, Tetraxone, isopromycin. Um, then treatment for primary, secondary, and latent is all the same, 2.4 million units. And that's uh, benzene, isn't it specifically benzene kind of Yes, uh, benzene. Right. Yeah. That's the formulation that's going to be injectable. and BNC. Um, I don't test for B. Uh, just the, the, for the most part, they're immunized. Okay, but thanks. HIV, uh, yeah. HIV, RPR, GC, chlamydia. That's kind of a standard now. Um, so what about the laboratory tests? So is there any laboratory tests that we can do to help us during the course of treatment? Monitoring, surveillance. Any idea about that? So treatment for syphilis may not be something you've done uh, a lot, but you can follow the, the non-treponemal specific tests, the, uh, the VDRL the and the RPR, and you can follow them down. So over a period of the year, they will trend down. Um, so you would test for six months, 12 months, um, and then 24 months after treatment, and, and you can watch it go down. So you're looking for a four-fold reduction uh, in that result, okay? Um, and what is the generic, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but Jerich Herxheimer reaction. Remember that from having probably thought about it in clinical school? Is it like the first 24 hours? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So is that, a, is that an allergy to the penicillin, or what causes that? Yeah, it's a result of the, from the syphilis itself. Yeah, so it's an interaction with, with the treatment of the syphilis. How do you treat that? Tylenol. Yeah, or Tylenol is the right answer. So you just treat it with the antipyretics. It doesn't require any other specific treatment. Um, so not a drug reaction. Um, um, something that will just come up. Um, and then uh, prevention recommendations. Um, so we'll, we'll come to that in a second. So penicillin, um, we talked about that. We talked about the, 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 uh, the follow-up testing and the JH reaction. Um, and the different stages, um, sometimes tertiary syphilis you know, comes up. That's an interesting thing to treat. Um, and, and the presentation is interesting. Sometimes when we have strange neuropsychiatric presentations on, on FAT admissions, you guys will be sending off uh, testing, uh, looking for tertiary syphilis. And that, um, I, I'm not familiar with cases that have come back positive, but it's a very important thing to, to think of, and, and, and we've certainly treated it overseas. So um, in the primary, we've talked about that. The secondary is the maculopapular rash. That's what's on the, the hands and palms. Uh, I'll show you a picture of that in a second. Um, they'll have fever, malaise, lymphadenopathy, uh, condyloma, um, and that will occur about one to three months after the primary stage results, and then you have latent, which is a kind of asymptomatic but a positive player, and then tertiary symptomatic tertiary syphilis as well. So there's the rash of secondary, or the maculopapular rash, um, and for the most part, we've walked through the diagnostic testing and the treatment of choice, which we've said was penicillin. Um, so, we have a couple more minutes, we'll go. Um, herpes, you're, you're pretty familiar with, right? We talk about this painful alterations, beginning with the vesicles. Um, historically, they were, they were majority of HSV2, but HSV1 is increasing significantly, and at this point, I'll get test results from either. Um, and so, you know, we don't test for one or the other, you're usually testing both. Uh, but for the most part, it's a clinical diagnosis that you're making on, on appearance. And you will often send off um, uh, a PCR or a viral culture to, uh, to, to confirm that. And, and it is helpful. Um, in the asymptomatic state, I, I wouldn't you know, routinely screen or test people for serology. That's not really helpful because the background positive rate in the population is pretty high. Uh, but you can send off serology if you're, if you're concerned about uh, an acute infection, understanding that it could be a false negative if it's very, very early. And of course, I think you guys are probably really familiar with regards to treating primary Excitavir is a little bit more frequent. I, uh, Valtrax is helpful as well, um, being the, the, the twice daily dosing, um, and then recurrent infection. So those are all things that are relatively easy to look up, and you probably have all treated uh, syphilis to some degree. So uh, herpes, sorry, uh, to some degree. So that's that's relatively easy for us. Um, Chancroid, we were talking about earlier. Um, again, not as common here. A little more common overseas, caused by Haemophilus ducreae, um, and that that um, painful. Um, uh, ulcer um, with some uh, inguinal lymphadenopathy um, treated with one time stat doses, the ceftriaxone or the azithromycin, those are still our preferred treatments. So I would lean towards the one time, one -time treatments uh, if you can do that. Uh, and then LGV caused by chlamydia, but a different serotype that will cause, then will cause um, um, uh, the, the, the cervicitis that we're familiar with usually. Um, so again, Clinical diagnosis, um, 
assisted with laboratory confirmation, treated with doxycycline and, and erythromycin. LGB is not, not nearly as commonly seen um, uh, than the others. Orxol, I'll kind of skip over because you're relatively familiar with that. Um, but so kind of take home the ulcerative lesions that we're talking about, your history, knowing the differential, thinking through you know, what this could potentially be. <coughs> is it, um, and, and the physical exam. Um, so thinking in terms of syphilis, herpes, warts, um, uh, Shankroid, LGB, um, oral possibilities, penicillin being the drug of choice of syphilis. Um, herpes is something that you'll continually retreat. These patients will just call, ask for a refill. If it's very frequent and really bothersome outbreaks, um, I would consider uh, adding suppressive therapy on um, if it's really if it's really bothersome and frequent. Um, and uh, and then the vaccine recommendations then for for HPV um, from nine to twenty six. You're pretty familiar with. Um, but then, you know, CDC has, it, it could be a conversation up to, up to 45. It's not a specific recommendation from 27 to 45, but to put the 45 on there because it's, it can be frequently worth a conversation. It's more effective if they are immunized prior to exposure to H HPV, right? But 80% of people are going to be uh, turn positive or be exposed to HPV. And so um, uh, having a conversation to, with people uh, is reasonable uh, even after the age of 26. Treating the partners, obviously, and tracking that down um, can be uh, can be useful. Um, I've started using a lot of anonymous texting um, uh, apps that allow you to even actually you can go to a website, put your sexual partner's uh, phone number in, and they get an anonymous 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 text um, saying that uh, they have potentially been exposed uh, to an STD. Um, and so I use that pretty standard. Uh, a lot of my patients have multiple sexual partners. They don't want to get up the phone and call them uh, directly, and so I actually have little, little handouts that I'll give them and say, "Hey, uh, this is this is a website you can use." There's actually quite a few of them, um, and it's an anonymous text, and they just say, uh, "I've been exposed." So I have patients coming in to the office saying, "Hey, I, I got this. Con I got this. I don't know who it is, uh, but I got this kind of random text saying that I was potentially exposed." Uh, and so you go from there. Um, so I would recommend that you actually uh, encourage you to use that. If you just Google it, it there's lots. Of all right, so um, that, that brings a close to our brief little time uh, talking about um, ulcers. Any other comments or things to add? Is insurance covering the HPV vaccine after age 26 yet? Uh, phone a friend. Questions? Have you heard of any updates on like a vaccine for syphilis? No. no. I don't know. Good idea though. Any others? All right, thank you for your attention.